We have <clears throat> come to chapter 36 and verse 13. We left off by this shall all men know you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. We've come now to Simon Peter. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? He's going to ask two questions. Where are you going and why can't I come? <clears throat> whither goest thou? And Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me wonderfully now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this remarkable portion of Scripture, uh, Peter at the end of chapter 13, now listening to Jesus through the dinner, watching Judas leave, no doubt by now the guys realize he was the traitor. He's gone. Somewhere in here the Lord institutes the Last Supper. And now he says he's going. Says in you know, verse 33, where I'm going, you guys can't come. He has some other things to say to them then. But Peter gets stuck there, as he often does as we follow him through Scripture. And his, his brain is there where the Lord said, where I'm going, you can't come. Seems like he has missed... Little children, I'm with you a little while. You know, a new commandment I give to you by this shall all men know. He's all the way back in verse 33, it seems. In verse 34, verse 32, I'm sorry. And Simon Peter then says, Lord, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving? And all of their hearts are touched. No doubt they've never read the chapter. They've never read the gospel. They don't know what we know reading this chapter. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Whither I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. In fact, he says in chapter 21, When you were young, Peter, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go. Someone else is going to spread forth your hands. Speaking of the fact that he would die by crucifixion, He says, you can't come. You're going to come afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me, utterly denied me three times. So, Peter's heart, no doubt, genuine. Um, he is genuinely sincere about this when he says it. He, uh, he loves Christ. He's passionate about his relationship with the Lord. But look, determination by itself is never enough. 
even when it comes to our de- devotion with Christ, we're so in need of Him moving in our hearts by His Spirit through His Word. So Peter is going to find out that the Lord knows him better than he knows himself, as will all of us discover that the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. And this morning, and this afternoon, and tomorrow, we all have hidden weaknesses that are yet to be revealed. We all have hidden weaknesses that are yet to be revealed. The Lord knows them. He knows them. He said before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He sees ahead into the future. You can't follow me now, but you're going to follow me. There's no surprises with the Lord as he looks at Peter. And no doubt he understands Peter's sincerity. And it is so different than him speaking to Judas and saying, what thou doest, doest quickly. Betrayal is in the chemistry. And here... With Peter, he's going to say to him, look, you can't come with me where I'm going now. And he hears him, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. And he knows he means that. How how tender that must have been for the Lord. But he knows Peter's, you know, he can't live up to what he's saying here. He says, you're going to follow me afterwards. Jesus is going to go through this whole evening. And Peter, we'll see as we go on, will deny him before the rooster crows. And I think as we look at it, the other disciples, what are they thinking? You know, Peter, people talk about the primacy of Peter. Peter is mentioned more than any other apostle through the Gospels in the book of Acts. Peter is the one we have more of his words, of his questions, and he's spoken to more than any of the other apostles. No doubt amongst the apostles, Peter, who apparently then becomes the head character in the early church there until we get to Paul um, is known and admired of the other guys. And they must be thinking, Judas is gone. You know, Jesus is telling us he's going to go. They didn't know what we know reading it this morning. And now he's telling Peter that even Peter is going to deny him Three times before the rooster crows. And in the, in the context is deny him utterly. There's an emphasis on the word there of denial. And they must be troubled. They're, they're, Peter must be troubled. The Lord just said this to him. The others must be sitting there looking at one another thinking, are you kidding? What's going on? Judas has betrayed him. The Lord said he's leaving. We can't go with him. Now he's even telling Peter, are we all going to deny him tonight? What's going to happen? And you have to understand... As John wrote this, there was no chapter break. John was there. And he said, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Verily, verily, when he says that, you listen. The rooster's not going to crow before you deny me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I'd have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Remarkable picture in context of failure. You know, the things they don't understand. The Lord sets this over against that for you and I. Because we will have failures. We will make mistakes. We'll have joys and sorrows. The things that will come into our life that will be troubling. 
And the Lord says here, in context of all of that, look, you look at the news, you look what's going on around us, you hear from friends and relatives, sometimes, you know, we're cut deeply by so many things, and yet the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. He asks something of us. Let not, as it's a present imperative there, you must stop letting your heart be troubled, assuming that that's something we already do. You have to stop letting your heart be troubled. You see, you know, Peter's going to deny him. We hear this. And in that context, there's, there's, when you and I do something we shouldn't do, and we know that, there are two mistakes we can make then. One, we can think, well, what the heck? It really doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. I can live however. My, my failures don't mean anything. And have a cavalier attitude. And the Lord doesn't want to see that. Or we can drown in condemnation. We can be so defeated by our weaknesses, we don't even want to go on anymore with the Lord. And what he says to us is, stop letting your heart be troubled. Now, it's interesting because your heart, your there is plural. So he's talking to all the guys. He's looking at them. Let not your heart is singular. Each one of you, this morning, let not your heart, your own heart. And, you know, it's not the thing beating in the chest of them. It's the deepest part of your being. Let not your heart be troubled. Is is passive there by things that come on you. You don't. There are things that come on you in life that trouble you, whatever they might be. You didn't ask for them. They get piled on. And he says to them, right in the light of Peter's failure, the fact he's going away, they must have that expression on their face like what in the world is going on. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, it's interesting as I read that, because in chapter 11, there Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, They're all weeping, the Jews, Mary, Martha. And it says, Jesus, when he saw their brokenness, saw their weeping, he was troubled in his heart. Same word, he was troubled. The next chapter, chapter 12, when the Gentiles come to see him, he says, look, a grain of wheat abides alone unless it falls into the ground and dies. Then it brings forth much fruit. And that's what's going to happen. He's looking at the cross in my life. And it says, then he was troubled in his soul. He was troubled. And he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is the very reason that I came forth. Then in chapter 13, each of these chapters, he's troubled. Chapter 13, there at the communion table, he said, one of you is going to betray me. It said, and when he said these things, he was troubled. And then he gets to chapter 14. He says, you guys don't let your heart be troubled. I think that's unfair. You're troubled about everything, and we're not allowed to be troubled. That's, it's, it's not fair. You know, as I sit and I look at it, I think what he's saying to us, in some ways, is, you know, death is troubling. No matter what anybody says, we normally do 80 to 100 funerals a year. Death is troubling. 
We do that many funerals. Sometimes young people wonder, why are they always talking about the gospel? Why are they always talking about heaven and hell? You do 100 funerals a year, a year that, it clarifies things. But death is troubling, no matter what anybody says. We don't have a place to file it. When God made Adam and Eve, he didn't give them the file for death because they weren't supposed to die. They sinned, they fell. What do we do with it? Where do we put it? I remember my dad drawing his last breath. It stopped. Dead quiet. He turned white. 60 seconds. And I thought, this is troubling. This is so final. You know, it would be different if somebody died again, and they took their last breath, and they disappeared, and the covers fell flat. Then you could, well, there goes another one, you know. Uh, but death is troubling. Jesus walked in our skin. He was tempted with all the things that we struggle with, yet without sin. And he's become a high priest that's touched with our infirmities. So we watch him there walking in our skin at that grave site. And it says he's troubled there because death is troubling. And he felt that for us. Then in the next chapter, he's talking about his crucifixion. And it says he was troubled. Do I say, Father, save me from this hour? And, and the truth is, suffering can be troubling. If we know there's something ahead of us and it's really going to be hard, maybe a surgery, maybe some other thing, there's something coming ahead of us, that can be troubling to us. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry you know, about tomorrow. Sufficient of the day is the evil thereof. But we can torture ourselves about what's coming. And often that's a reality. So we can be troubled about the future, too. And then in chapter 13, it's in regards to Judas. And we can be troubled about betrayal. And again, anybody in this room who's been alive more than an hour has experienced betrayal. It's part of life. And it can be from a spouse. It can be from a child or a parent. It can be from a best friend. It can be from a classmate. Betrayal is troubling. So I think what he's saying here as we look at this is, look, death is troubling. It's a stranger. It doesn't belong with us. Death is troubling. Suffering is troubling. Betrayal is troubling. But when it comes to heaven, when it comes to heaven, don't let your hearts be troubled. This thing is nailed down. When it comes to that thing, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You're trusting. You need to be trusting. There are imperatives in him. You need to be trusting in me. You do that with him. Do that with me. Look, that is the prescription for a troubled heart. What do we do if we got a heart trouble? Not in the physical realm. In the spiritual he says, trust me. You've trusted God. Trust me. Trust me. Because he knows about seeing the future. He knows about death. He knows about betrayal. And he says, I want you to trust me because in my Father's house are many. There's this one thing. It's unshakable. You are able to look forward past all of those things that are piled up in front of you. And there's something there set before you. And the prescription for you while you're waiting to experience that is trust me. You've trusted God. 
Now trust me. And he says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Many dwelling places. In fact, the only time you find that word mansions is here in verse 2. And then down in verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My father will love him. And we, him and the father, will come to him and make our mansion with him. The only two places abode there. Mansion in verse 2. It really has the idea of a dwelling place, of, of settling down, of, of, kind of, of being at home. Take your shoes off, rest for a while. You know, it isn't just when we think of mansions because we're human, we think of the Beverly Hillbillies mansion. You know, we th- we're thinking of, you know, what, we're, well, I'm finally going to get what I deserve. You know, we're thinking of, and it'll be more than that, trust me. But he says, but in my father's house. Now, we know this has got to be in heaven because Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. And if our Father is in heaven, undoubtedly, that's where his house is. And he said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And he does something there. Look, the oikos, the word house can mean home. It can be a place of rest. And he's giving us something here. You know, a home is more than just locality. A home, and, and forgive me because I know there's, in a crowd this big, there's many people that have had a, a terrible home situation that were abused or never enjoyed. But for us that have... Home is more than a mere location. Home is a smell. It's a sound. It's a temperature. It's a table. It's an old funky sofa you can just collapse into. It's people. It's faces. And he's telling us there's a home. It's my father's home. And you know, in his word in the New Testament, four times he tells us that we should be given to hospitality. Because he is. And he's dwelling in us. Imagine him opening his home for such as us. He says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. They already exist. There are. As he's speaking to the disciples in the room, he says, right now, In my father's house, they exist. They're there now. Many mansions. And he said, if that wasn't true, I'd have told you. I'd never have let you get your hopes up about something that was not a reality. All through the New Testament, heaven's a reality. It's called a kingdom. It's called an inheritance. It's called a country. It's called a city. It's called a home. And it's in front of us as believers. Look. You know, unbelievers, that last breath holds terror. Unbelievers can be tortured about how uncertain the future is when they're in hospice or they're ready to take that last breath. They don't know what they're stepping into. But for you and I, we've been told in many places, it's heaven, it's ahead of us, 
It's secure. It's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled. You know, fadeth not away. And then you've already got a reservation. And God would have made a reservation if he didn't know you were going to get there. And he knows our failures and he knows our triumphs. He knows when we're denying him or doing something we shouldn't do. But he also knows you will follow me after this. It's interesting here where the Great Awakening took place, particularly in this area. And there's a, the book, A Vision That Changed the Nation, William Tennant. I, if you haven't read it, read it. It talks about Ben Salem and Warminster and all these you know, areas. But there's part of the record there is William Tennant, Jr., and I have to glue the page back in my book when I get home. It says, there was an extraordinary account of young William Jr.'s death and resurrection after three days. Thanks to the research of the Tennant family's illustrious friend, Elias Baudinet, who served as president of the Continental Congress and the first president of the American Bible Society, William's death experience is considered credible. William had all the accompanying signs of death, cold skin, stiff body, sunken eyes, stiff mouth, no breath for three days. That's pretty convincing. What's more, after he came back to life, he recounted later to Baudinet what he saw during his death experience. I saw an innumerable host of happy beings surrounding the inexpressible glory in acts of adoration and joyous worship. But I did not see any bodily shape or representation in the glorious appearance. I heard things that were unutterable. I heard their songs and hallelujahs of thanksgiving and praise with unspeakable rapture. I felt joy unutterable and full of glory. And then I applied to my conductor, the angel who had brought him, I applied to my conductor and requested to leave so that I might join this happy throng, on which he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must return to earth. This seemed like a sword through my heart. I bet you, you're going to leave heaven and go back to Warminster. Then just <laughs> This seemed like a sword through my heart. In an instant... I recollected to have seen my brother standing before me arguing with the doctor. The three days during which I had appeared lifeless seemed to me to be not more than 10 or 20 minutes. The idea of returning to this world of sorrow and trouble gave me such shock that I fainted repeatedly. Such was the effect on my mind of what I had seen and heard that if it be possible for a human being to live entirely above this world and the things of it, for some time afterward, I was that person. The ravishing sounds of the songs and the hallelujahs that I had heard and the very words that were uttered were not out of my ears when awake for at least three years. That's because at the end of three years he died again. Yeah, uh, so, you know, this and our get the book. The book's remarkable, really. If you if you love history, you love what has taken place here. But heaven, a reality for you and I. You know, you can read those other books. You know, at death's door, written by a doctor. 
who who didn't you know he no belief you know uh, agnostic and uh, several times he said I right at the, somebody passing I heard them scream they wanted to get out of the flames they screamed about the darkness and he said after several times you know I was completely freaked out and then finally of course he comes to faith in Christ because he realizes that's real what they're experiencing is real perception is reality to the individual so Jesus says here in my father's house there are many mansions heaven if that were not so I would have told you and I go to prepare a place for you I'd never let you have a false hope and I'm going because if he doesn't go he can't return and we sure want him to return he said I'm going to prepare this for you he's saying look your earthly life right now we're only living in the vestibule. The main door is going to open soon. And if he's going to prepare a place for you, we feel pretty good about it because he was a carpenter while he was here. He knows what he's doing, made the heavens and the earth in six days, and he's been preparing your place for 2,000 years, if you can imagine. It says he's preparing for us a place, singular, Mansions are plural, but they already exist. But he says to them, each one of them is going to have a singular, a place for you. He's preparing, remarkably. And then rather than going into the details, I mean, what does it look like? He doesn't go into the details. I know that when we see it, we'll realize what eyeballs were for all along. They have not been exercised here properly. When we hear what's going on there, we'll understand what ears are for. When we get there, we're finally that overwhelming sense, I'm home. Everything I could ever want, everything I long for, everything I thought, it's here. Completeness. Even the temperature is perfect. My wife won't control the thermostat when we get there. It's nailed down. But he doesn't go into those details. He rather tells us of the spaciousness, the room that is. There's many mansions. Because century after century, death has been depositing believers into that father's house. And no doubt there's an innumerable company of our family and our brothers and sisters that are there. We'll see our moms again and our dads again. We'll see our sisters, our siblings, you'll see Charles Spurgeon. You know, just imagine what it will be like. And there's still room. If you've never come to Christ, there's still room today. You just need to make your reservation. You don't have to pay for it. You can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. It's secure because he did all the work. And he's saying that to these men that are failing in their faith. Peter's going to deny him. He's saying, look, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. You trust God. Trust me as well. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it wasn't like that, I'd have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you, if you can imagine what that will be like. 
You know, one of the old Puritans said, what, you know, what do you do when you have someone coming home that's been lost or gone for a long time? You hear they're coming. What do you do when someone is coming home from war that's been gone for years? What do you do when someone's coming home from being out on the sea? What do you do when someone's coming home after a long stay in the hospital? You prepare the place. They walk in, they smell their favorite dinner, their favorite meal, their favorite dessert, their favorite show on TV, their favorite place to flop in the living room, their favorite things in their rooms. So the mansions are all there, but the preparation of them is individual relative to our idiosyncrasies, if you can imagine that. And those are not surprising or mysterious to him because he gave us all those idiosyncrasies. We were formed, it says, in our mother's womb, in his genius. And he says then, and if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Look, the Jews knew nothing of this, what he's saying here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, written earlier, addressed the Olivet Discourse and talked about the Great Tribulation, talked about the Antichrist, talked about the things that would come. And, and the Jews understood those things. But John is writing much later. Jerusalem's gone. Israel's been scattered. None of that remains. And he's writing to the church. And this is the teaching of the last days for the church. I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. In fact, that word receive, most often translated, take. I'm going to come and take you. Doesn't that sound good? We all know what he's talking about there. He's going to come and take us. I'm ready to be took or taken. I don't care. Took me, taken me, took me, whatever it is. I'm ready, aren't you? He's going to come. The Jews knew only about Messiah coming and setting up an earthly kingdom. They knew nothing about a Messiah coming and taking his people to be with him where he was. And this is written to you and I. He said, I have to depart. If I don't depart, I can't come again. So we live in this age where his coming to take us is closer to us than has been to any generation of the church, to any Christians that have ever lived. How far away is it? He says it's going to be an hour that we think not. Right now, he's putting the finishing touches on your place. He's finishing up. He's not just idle. And he's going to come and he's going to receive us. And I don't have to earn it. I don't have to deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. He's coming to give it to me freely and undeservedly. Early church fathers, Papias, Irenaeus, Cyprian, Oregon, saw this passage, these verses in John 14, as eschatological. They realized he was coming, it meant he was coming to get his people. 
And I want to tell you something. He is coming to get his people. Everything is troubling around us in the world. You know, the war, threats of war. Now they're talking about nuclear war, talking about another pandemic, talking about politics, talking about the economy, talking about the things you're struggling with in your own life. All the things around us that could trouble us. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm coming. Doesn't matter who wins this afternoon. That's not the news. The news is he's coming. He's prepared a place for us. While he was doing that, he knew our failings. He knew our, our successes. He knew where we'd stand strong. He knew where we would fall. He knows us better than we know, we know ourselves. And on those days when our heart is drugged down to the deepest place, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and would say, look, You've got to stop letting your heart, your heart, singular, be troubled. Let these things that are coming on you, it's passive trouble there. Don't, don't let it happen. You trust God? Trust me also, he says. Because what lays ahead of you? My father's house, many mansions. And if that wasn't true... I would never let you wander around this ball of dirt with a false hope. I would never deceive you. That wasn't true, I tell you. This is how true it is. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming back to take you away, carry you over the threshold into my Father's house. Are we ready? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, I know you've overheard. We look to you and thank you for your written word. Lord, we look at this and we wonder about the tone of your voice, Lord. The look in your eye. The trouble the disciples were having in their heart. And Lord, you know when we're troubled. Lord, we're unable to see at that moment the look in your eye. We are unable, Lord, to hear at that moment the tone of your voice. But we do know that your word is enough. That heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will abide forever. And Lord, we're homesick. We have that insatiable longing for something that we never experience here. So come quickly, Lord. We look to you and we pray, Lord. In your name, amen.